Well, two weeks ago, it was Mother's Day, and you'll remember I was very grateful that the passage in 1 Thessalonians 2 that we had come to was appropriate for that day. And it's because of what verse 7 says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'll read it again just to remind you. But we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. That verse, you'll remember, allowed me to make some additional comments related to motherhood. So it fit the day, Mother's Day. Well, today's passage is appropriate for Father's Day. The problem is, Father's Day is not until June 18th. So I labored all week what to do about that. I even considered delaying our study of this passage just to hold off till June 18th and just preach other sermons until I got there. But I wasn't really happy with that approach. So here's what I've decided to do. I've decided to declare that today is Father's Day, (laughs) and we're going to celebrate Father's Day today, so let me be the first one to say happy Father's Day to you. Our passage is still in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, it's verses 9 through 12, 9 through 12. Now in this passage, Paul's still defending the ministry he and Silas and Timothy had in the city of Thessalonica. That's what's been going on because he was attacked by those who opposed him and uh, accusing him of all sorts of things related to his character and his ministry and so forth. So he's been describing and defending the ministry that he and the missionary team had, but now he moves on to remind the Thessalonians of the, the kind of commitment that characterized the missionary's time in that city. In particular, we find three commitments that that missionary team was known for. Those commitments surface here in this passage, I believe. So we could say as well that these are commitments church leaders should be known for still today. Let me read verses 9 to 12 for us, 1 Thessalonians 2. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship How working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God. How devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So three commitments that surface here that this missionary team was known for. First of all, they were known for this. Number one, committed to evangelism. Committed to evangelism. Now once again, we see in verse 9 the apostle stating that the believers in Thessalonica knew what he was about to say. They could vouch for what he's declaring here, something that was true. Verse 9 says, For you recall, brethren... And it's this, our labor and hardship. Now that opening term for, that connecting term, looks back to verse 8, where Paul had stated how much he and his ministry teammates loved these people. So now we find that this love and concern he had for them is confirmed by how hard the missionaries worked to support themselves. 
Now, two terms here capture just how hard they worked. Look at the first one, number nine. He says, you recall our labor. That's a Greek term that focuses on the, the fatigue and the, the exhaustion and the weariness that can go along with some forms of manual labor, the result of working hard. And then the other term, you recall our hardship, that second term refers to just how difficult the work was that they were doing. So together, the two terms combine to speak of them, difficult, hard, exhausting labor, and they're used elsewhere to speak of the same thing. For example, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 27, I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights. We'll see it when we get to the second letter to the Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 8 says, with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day. Now, we know something about the kind of job Paul likely had. We know that from Acts chapter 18. That's the part of Acts that talks about his ministry there in this city and other cities on his missionary journey. But in Acts chapter 18, verse 3, it mentions that that he was a tent maker. What's interesting is that the word that's used there uh, actually literally means a worker with leather. So it's possible Paul was involved in the uh, making of tents, but it's also possible he was involved in the production of the material, the tent material from animal hair and animal skins and so forth. But either way, what he did was considered hard work. And it was true for Silas and Timothy as well, whatever they did. These men, all three of them, wore themselves out as they worked long hours which Paul confirms those long hours in verse 9. He says, recall how we were working night and day. It's interesting that he words it that way. Normally, we say day and night. It's likely that he inverts those for a reason. He's indicating likely that they rose to work before sunrise. A normal work day in that time, in that culture, was from sunrise to sundown. And he's making the point, we got up even started working before then. And our labors continued throughout the day. Beyond the norm, they worked. Why did they do that? Verse 9 tells us, so as not to be a burden to any of you. And that term burden is referring to a financial burden, an economical burden. These men worked at jobs, in other words, to support themselves so that the Thessalonians, whom they dearly loved, would not have to provide them finances. The apostle just did not want he and his team to be accused of wrong motives in what they were doing. They wanted to see people come to Christ. That's why they were there. That was their mission. So in that ministry context, they determined it was better not to collect any funds, any money from the people. They didn't have to take that approach. These missionaries could have rightly expected to receive money from the people. In fact, Paul himself teaches that in a couple of different passages. He writes that churches have the responsibility to financially sustain the leadership. For example, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse, uh, verse 9, it is written in the law of Moses, here's a quotation from the Old Testament, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. In other words, when the ox is working to tread out the grain and pulling the heavy stone, don't put a muzzle on him. Let him... Le- Uh, lean forward and eat some of the grain sometime to sustain him. 
In verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 9, it says something even more directly. The Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. And in 1 Timothy 5, we know that he writes about elders there. And he says the elders who rule well are considered worthy of double honor, not only respect but remuneration, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. And then he quotes the Old Testament again because the Scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. And the Scripture says this, the laborer is worthy of his wages. So in normal situations, pastors should not have to engage in jobs outside the church to provide for their family's needs. But that's not always possible. There are situations where it's necessary. There are impoverished communities or small churches where it's necessary. It's certainly the case in many countries that I've traveled to. You go to Russia and, or Italy, and that's the norm there. The churches have very little to provide for support. But just a commentary, it's to the detriment of the church because a pastor's attention is divided. But nevertheless, in this city, in Thessalonica, Paul personally chose not to receive funds. He chose not to demand the right of support from that church. His purpose for going to cities on his missionary journeys was to evangelize, see people come to Christ according to God's sovereign plan, and then to see churches planted. So he just didn't want to place any heavy economic obligation on those new churches. And that's why manual labor occupied much of the missionaries' time during their stay in Thessalonica. That's true of Corinth as well and Ephesus. But here's what's amazing. Even though they worked to the point of exhaustion, they didn't lose their focus. They didn't forget what their mission was there. They were still committed to preaching the gospel because that was their ultimate mission. Look back at verse 9. Even though we worked hard and we labored to the point of exhaustion, you recall, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. That verb proclaimed is the word that's used to denote the action of a herald, H-E-R-A-L-D, herald. A herald was someone who was given a message, and the herald's responsibility was to pass that message along. He had no liberty to innovate related to that message. He couldn't modify the message at all. So like a herald, Paul was given a message, and he tells you here it was the gospel. He was not given a mission to go into cities and try to impress people with his speaking ability or just leaving them with a memory of polished oratories. He wasn't going into cities to present messages that simply just met people's needs the way the people define them. Rather, his mission was to preach the gospel of God. The gospel is called that sometimes in the New Testament, the gospel of God. It's a way of reminding us where the gospel originated It originated with God in His eternal mind. It's a message fixed, unchangeable, fixed by God. And the Thessalonians knew that these missionaries had been committed to preaching that message. They had been committed to their God-given mission. They had refused to compromise the message. They didn't alter the teachings to avoid controversy. Instead, even though they were exhausted daily from their jobs... Paul and these other men had set forth 
but steadfastly set forth the gospel, the good news about Christ, while relying on God's power to win whatever converts would be saved according to God's will. And this commitment to evangelism on the part of the missionaries proved to be a great example to the Thessalonians because they began to be known for it as well. The example of these men motivated the believers to spread the gospel as well. Look back at chapter 1. We saw that when we studied chapter 1, verse 8. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. So these Thessalonians were known for their zeal for evangelism. They obviously learned that from the apostles, what it meant to witness about Christ, even though we have other responsibilities as well. In fact, not only did the need to work not curtail their evangelism, think about it. Where was Paul spending most of his time? He said day and night, laboring, working. For Paul, the workplace was a forum for discussing the gospel with whatever opportunities he could have. It's right to think that many of this Thessalonians that he's writing to had heard the gospel there. Perhaps as they labored with Paul in the marketplace or as they conducted business with him in the marketplace, they're hearing about Christ. This team was committed to evangelism. Here's a second commitment. They were, number two, committed to godliness, committed to godliness. Now, we've already seen Paul discussing this, the personal integrity that he and the other men were known for. So now in verse 10, he picks back up on that theme, and he says he knew that others could verify. He says it again. Here's the second time. He's appealing to them. You can verify what I'm saying. Verse 10, you are witnesses. And the you there is emphatic in the original language. We don't see that in the English, but literally it's something like you of all people can definitely be witnesses and vouch for this, the integrity of our lives and the integrity of our pastoral ministry. But he goes on to call upon another witness, and so is God, he says in verse 10. So certain is Paul that the missionary's behavior and ministry had been above reproach that he says, God God knows, God can be called upon as a witness, I appreciate what the commentator Green says here, quote, the Thessalonians could bear witness to what they had seen, God could bear witness to what they had not seen. And here's what both sides could verify, verse 10, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved. Now, I know you're thinking the same thing I thought when I first read that verse. You're thinking it. I know you are. You're thinking Oh, those are adverbs, three adverbs. You're probably diagramming the sentence in your mind, even as I read it, okay? So let's look at those three adverbs that he uses here to describe their conduct. First one is devoutly. You could translate that holy, even though it's not the common New Testament term for holy. But even though it's not that common term, it still means to behave, to act in a holy manner, It does mean to conform to whatever God commands. We don't use the word piously anymore, hardly. It almost has a negative connotation to some, but it's a good term. It means that, to to act piously, 
Because that means to live with a sense of reverence and a sense of devotion toward God. You're you're aware, you're cognizant that you are set apart for God's purposes. So Paul's point in using the term is to say that the ultimate purpose behind all their hard work at their job and their proclamation of the gospel, they were committed to please the Lord. They were committed in everything to glorify the Lord. There's a second adverb, uprightly. You can translate that righteously. It describes the kind of conduct that not only conforms to God's laws, divine laws, but also human laws. Paul and his team were consistent, you see, in obeying any laws that did not contradict directly God's Word. And they did that so that they could have clear consciences and so that they could maintain a good testimony in that city. They behaved righteously. They acted uprightly in all categories. In the third term, they acted and lived blamelessly. That means without cause for reproach. In ancient writings, it was used to describe people who, would, who were known for fulfilling their obligations all their lives, throughout their lives. So Paul very emphatically states here that their actions were untainted. They were consistently blameless in all their choices to obey both God's laws and human laws. Pretty strong terms. But of course, he's not saying they never sinned. As we know elsewhere, Paul even says that he considered himself the chief of sinners. Now, I love that expression in Philippians 3 verse 12 after he talks about, you know, laying laying aside what's, what's behind and what the past is. You don't keep looking at the past. You, you go forward. He says in Philippians 3.12, not that I have already become perfect. I haven't, but I press on. He presses on toward a life that will please and glorify the Lord. So our passage just means that there was no obvious sin patterns in their behavior. There there were no obvious glaring glitches there in their behavior that handles that people could grab hold of and be legitimate reasons to criticize these men. And all that godly behavior was directed, verse 10 says, toward you believers. That's a good biblical label for Christians, believers, since faith is at the very center, belief is at the very center of the whole scheme of things here for us as Christians. But the point is that missionaries, their their godly testimony there was clearly evident to those who were truly saved. And these are all areas in which spiritual leaders of all kinds should apply themselves still, whatever leadership position we're in. I mean, it only makes sense, holiness toward God, righteousness toward people, blamelessness before the world, and it all adds up to one word, godliness. These men were committed to godliness, committed to evangelism, committed to godliness. And here's the third one, number three, committed to discipleship, committed to discipleship. Let me remind you of the Great Commission just for a moment, Matthew chapter 28, the risen Lord gives directions to his disciples and through them to all of us. He says, as you go in the world, it assumes the command is not to go, it's assumed that we go. And as we go, we're to do something. And here's the command. Make disciples. That's talking about the preaching of the gospel and seeing whom God draws to himself to be saved. 
And the command goes on then to say, once someone is saved, they need to be baptized. Baptized as a believer. It's in that order. That's how it's presented in Scripture. That's a testimony that you're a disciple. And it goes on to say there's more that they need. The baptism is a one-time thing, a testimony, but they need to be taught all the things I've commanded, all the things I've said. They need to be taught biblical truth. They need to be discipled. Well, Paul and his team members were committed to that. They were committed to the very process of discipleship, the process that is involved in helping believers grow. The first thing he does is describe the manner of their discipleship here, verse 11. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you. Now here, the three terms are verbal expressions, verbs. And they're the kind of verbs that altogether would give certainly the impression of earnestness on the part of these missionaries and and a sense of urgency with what they're doing in, in their pursuit of helping the Thessalonians grow in their sanctification, which is the big word for spiritual growth, maturing in Christ, becoming more like Christ. All their preaching and their teaching included these three elements. First of all, verse 11 says, exhorting. That's one of the principal verbs used in the New Testament for moral instruction. Instruction having to do with how to live a moral life before God. You find it many times. It's translated different ways, actually. The Greek term can be translated exhort or encourage or urge. 1 Thessalonians 3, chapter 3 coming up, verse 2, he says, We sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. It's the same Greek term. We, we sent Timothy to exhort you. Romans 12, verse 1, familiar words. Paul writes, therefore, I urge you to present your bodies a living sacrifice. Urge, same Greek term. I exhort you. Peter writes to elders in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. I exhort the elders shepherd the flock of God among you. So it's a great term. This term conveys the idea that Paul set before the people in his preaching and teaching. He gave them clear biblical expectations for how a believer should live in this world to the point of exhorting them, urging them to obey the Lord in their daily lives. Still today, we need that. Scripture is full of exhortations. We can't ignore them. Because there's always a need for godly change in our lives. Second term, a second element of their preaching and teaching, encouraging. Now, in the New Testament, this term, uh, it can be translated comforting. It can be translated consoling. It's always used that way in the New Testament, the idea of consoling someone or comforting someone that's gone through a very difficult time of life, experienced a personal tragedy, maybe the death of a loved one, whatever it might be. They need consoling, comforting. That's what the Jews did when they went to Mary and Martha's house after their brother, brother, uh, their brother Lazarus died. It says in John eleven nineteen 19 that many of the Jews came to Mary and Martha to console them concerning their brother. It's this word. We're told to do that with other people in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 14. He says, we urge you, brethren, 
encourage the faint-hearted. It's this term. Console them, comfort them, encourage them. So this tells us something about the missionaries' ministry there, that when they commuted, uh, communicated truth, even though the, you must exhort and urge, still with them there was a note of tenderness in their ministry because they were very sensitive to the people who were going through difficult times, sensitive to those who were growing weary in their faith. And so they wanted to encourage them and motivate them to persevere and to not lose hope. And today, we still need to give personal attention to those who are in those spots in life, those who are discouraged, those who are weak, those who are lonely. Not just the church leaders are to do that. Every Christian is called to encourage his brothers, his sisters in Christ, to come alongside them with encouraging words and actions that will strengthen them in Christ. We do that, that by bearing their burdens with, that, we, with them. We say that to people sometimes when they're going through difficult times. We're here with you. We're, we're bearing this burden with you as best we can. We do that by praying with them and praying for them. We seek to be companions to people who are lonely. And all of this is just to give us opportunities to share with them our conviction that God is faithful, God is working, God loves them, and they can trust Him. It's an important part of discipleship. There's a third term, and it's the strongest of the three. In the translation I'm using, imploring is how it's translated. This one adds a note of authority to the communication. In preaching and teaching, if you're sharing truth, there's some authority involved. Naturally, because it's God's Word. And so it's the idea now of insisting or requiring that a certain course of action be adopted. You must do this. Therefore, we can conclude that even though there was a note of tenderness in all their manner, these preachers didn't shy away from telling the converts how they should live. They didn't shy away from saying this is right or this is wrong. They didn't shy away from saying this is how you should press on in faith and press on pursuing godliness. And what's amazing is he's saying this is what we did from the very beginning. This was our ministry Exhorting, encouraging, consoling, comforting, urging, pleading, imploring. That tells us that these people knew right from the start what was required of them by God. So put these three together and you have a summary of what makes up then biblical preaching and teaching discipleship. Now some preachers and some sermons and teachers and lessons, I suppose, lack one or the other of these three. But depending on the tax, I mean, God, God expects church leaders to do all three of these because the sheep today still need all three. We, we need all three to keep going on the path of faith, on the path of godliness and serving Christ as followers of Christ, disciples of Christ. A person who's saved is a Christian, is a believer, is a follower, is a disciple. And notice that this approach that they were taking was personal. He says in verse 11, each one of you. I mean, they didn't just give the message to the general congregation. They did that. The whole congregation in general terms they preached. But they also sought to disciple people to one by one, he says, to encourage, console, and implore. And then to clarify even more 
how this ministry looked, <clears throat> he draws upon a metaphor. And he changes the metaphor from what he used back in verse, in the earlier verse, 7, about a mother's tender care. And he uses the metaphor now of a father, a father. He says, I did all this, verse 11, as a father would his own children. Now, this is, tells us some important things about fathering. Let me just read another context, by the way, where Paul also says his ministry was that of a father. It's back in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 14 and 15. He says there to those Corinthians, he says, I, I write these things to admonish you as my beloved children. And he says in verse 15, because in Christ, I became your father through the gospel. And that was literally true in the sense that there was no gospel work in Corinth. Paul went in there preaching the gospel by God's sovereign design. Some came to Christ. That's the only way it happens. And a church was planted. He really was their father in the gospel, so to speak. You could say it was true in Thessalonica. But in verse 7, he said, I was like a mother. Now he says, I'm like a father. You see, together, you get this balanced parental picture of spiritual leadership. Christians need motherly care from their leaders. Families need motherly care. But Christians also need fatherly input, just like children do. A father is to take seriously his obligation to instruct his children, to prepare his children for life in this world. A faithful father in the home then does all this. He's exhorting. He's consoling and encouraging. At times he's imploring, urging, as he seeks to disciple his children in the things of Scripture. That's his responsibility. So that was Paul's perspective about his ministry. He intentionally sought to help his converts mature in faith and mature in godliness. And it's an analogy, just as a father does with his children. Just something about the model here that he's thinking about. It wasn't necessarily the Roman model of fatherhood. If you study their culture in Roman homes, the father it really is presented many times having the image of being harsh and severe. But in Greek families, it was a different kind of model. One of the prime obligations of a father in the Greek culture, they understood this, was the moral instruction of the children. So that's what Paul is thinking. It's a good metaphor to use. Church leaders must teach truth. They must call for moral change, but it needs to be carried out in the tenderness of a, of a Greek-style father. Yes, there are occasions when the father has to reprove his child. But still, the correction is never disconnected from his love or his kindness. It's a great metaphor. And this metaphor of a father's responsibility to instruct his children finds its roots in the Old Testament, especially the Pentateuch. Here's some passages from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 9. And it's even uh, multi-generational here in what's said, Deuteronomy 4.9. Don't forget the things which your eyes have seen, and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life, but make them known to your sons and grandsons. I did it with my sons, now I'm doing it with my grandson. 
Deuteronomy 6, verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. This is in that great passage we call the Shema. Very important, you know, where Israel said, listen up. Our God is one God. Talking about truth, the, the laws of God, the word of God. Deuteronomy 6, 7, you shall teach them, God's laws, diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. In other words, the, the instruction takes place in the milieu of life, in all the different occasions of life. Family devotions can be wonderful, organized times but I believe the most effective times are in the milieu of life. When you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up, children dealing with sibling issues or issues at school or issues in the neighborhood or whatever it might be, things happen. Teach them in those times. Exodus 10 verse 2, again, it's multi-generational. You may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson, Tell them how I, God, made a mockery of the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them that you may know that I am Yahweh. So back to Paul. He understood all those verses from the Old Testament. He understood the responsibility that fathers have to instruct their children, and thus he had been like that to these Thessalonians, like a father. That was the manner of his discipleship. Then he tells us in verse 12 what the goal of it was. A very important goal. So that... You would walk in a manner worthy. The goal of all the discipleship and the preaching and the teaching and the consoling and the encouraging and the imploring was to see a worthy lifestyle develop on the part of the people. That's what the term walk refers to, as you know in Scripture, lifestyle. And using the term walk like that has its origin in the Old Testament as well. 2 Kings 20 verse 3. Remember now, O oh Lord, how I have walked before you in truth and with a whole heart. He's not saying, you know, I took one step in front of another step, you know, in front of you. I walked before you. I lived my life. Proverbs 6, Proverbs 6 extols the, the value of God's truth, God's wisdom. In verse 22, referring to the wisdom found in God's commandments, it says, when you walk about, they will guide you. And then that old language was adopted into the New Testament, especially in Paul's letters. I'll give you several quickly. Romans 6 verse 4, as Christ was raised from the dead, so we too were in Christ. We, we've raised with him, so we walk in newness of life. We live in a newness of life now, spiritually alive. Romans 8 4, it says the negative side of it. We do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, says walk by the Spirit and you won't fulfill the desires of the flesh. And in Colossians 1.10, he says almost the same thing he says in 1 Thessalonians 2. Colossians 1.10, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects. That's what it means, to walk worthy of the Lord, to seek to please Him in all respects. To walk in a worthy way means to make steady progress then in what it means to grow in what it means to live a holy life, a life that honors the Lord and pleases the Lord. And there's one more thing to consider about this goal for our lives, to walk in a worthy way. He adds something 
takes it to a deeper level here in verse 12, of the God who calls you. That's our identity. We are those called by God. To say it differently, no one is saved because they sought after God. It starts with God. God seeks, God calls people to himself. And he gives them new life according to his sovereign will. In theology, this call is termed the effectual call. It's always effective when God does that. And this effectual saving call, which is in tandem with the ministry of the Word and the ministry of the Spirit, brings about the new birth. The call is the new birth, regeneration, and saving faith is always the result of the new birth. We don't control that. That's a sovereign work of God, the new birth, the call, and the resulting saving faith. By the way, this effectual saving call is not just a call to salvation. It's also termed in Scripture a call to a life of holiness. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we'll get to it eventually, verse 7. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity. No, He called us for another purpose, in sanctification. There's that word for spiritual growth and maturing in Christ. And then he adds even more to it, verse 12. God calls us into his kingdom and glory. Even a deeper level of thinking about this. What is God's kingdom? Essentially, God's kingdom is the sphere of his saving activity and rule in this world. In other words, someone enters this sphere, this this reign of God by receiving Christ as Lord and Savior through faith. When someone is saved, they are now in the kingdom. We come under His rule, the rule of our Lord, King Jesus, from that moment onward. So in one respect, we can say God's kingdom is a present reality. And there are scriptures that present it that way. For example, Colossians 1 verse 13 talks about the kingdom we were in. We were taken out of that kingdom and put in a different kingdom. Colossians 1 13, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness, that's the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of this world, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And so that's a present tense reality if someone is saved. They're in the kingdom. They're under the rule of Christ. The world we live in doesn't recognize that. The world around us persists in rebellion against the kingship of Christ. But regardless, true believers are those who have surrendered to Christ's rule. And thus... From the moment of their new birth, they have, in saving faith, they have come under his lordship. That's why the gospel is even presented that way in Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But there's also a future aspect of the kingdom. Sometimes the Bible presents it that way. God's full and unopposed Reign is a future event that will consummate salvation history at the coming of the Lord again. And so scriptures talk about the kingdom that way, something that's still to come. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says the unrighteous do not inherit that kingdom, the eternal kingdom. 
2 Timothy 4.18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed in this world and bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. So there is a future aspect, and in the future ultimate version of the kingdom, look at what else verse 12 says, God is going to make us participants in his glory. Glory is that unhindered manifestation of God's presence. Nothing to hinder the, the understanding and the the cognizance of, cognizance of and, the, and the experience of God's presence in eternity, glory. And we're going to share in that. Romans 5.2 says we even exult in it. We exult in the hope of this glory, the glory of God. Romans 8 verse 18, Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed to us. And included in this glory is the very fact that our own bodies are resurrected for eternity and glorified. So in summary, in one sense, God's kingdom is present here and now in the the rule of Christ in the hearts of those who have yielded themselves to him as their Savior and Lord. And yet the ultimate realization of the kingdom is still future. There's more to say about that. The the Messianic kingdom of Christ, which is the front porch, so to speak, of the eternal kingdom. But, but the issue for us right now is this is who we are. We're the ones called by God. We are not only under His rule now, but we are destined to enjoy His eternal glory in His eternal kingdom. And knowing that that is our identity is an incentive then to godly living now. It is an incentive to living now exactly the way this passage has said it, in a manner that is worthy of our calling. Well, we're reminded of some important things in this passage. I would say we're reminded in this passage, first of all, the importance of fathers. Why else would Paul use that metaphor? You know, think of it this way. In both contexts, strong spiritual fathers are needed in the church. Strong literal fathers are needed in the home. In both contexts, we need fathers to be examples of what it means to live uprightly before God, before their people, before their children, before the world. I have more to say about that, and time's going to Tell me to save it for the real Father's Day, maybe on Father June 18th. And yet the ultimate realization of the kingdom that's future calls us to pursue this with all of our heart to be these strong spiritual fathers as church leaders. We want to exemplify the same characteristics, the kind of characteristics that a faithful literal father is to exhibit in the home. Instructing his children, preparing them for life, being involved in the lives of his children, exhorting, encouraging, consoling, comforting, urging, imploring, entreating. One commentator said this, it's not enough for leaders just to be compassionate, tender, and caring as spiritual mothers. They also need to live lives that in their motives and actions set the standard for all to follow. Furthermore, they need to teach the truth faithfully and call their spiritual children or literal children, either one, to obedience. 
That's what the sheep need to see spiritual fathers doing. Pursuing a life of holiness, battling sin, progressing in godliness. Consistently taking a stand on biblical truth. Not what we want the Bible to say, but the hard work of exegesis in determining what is the meaning of the text. We don't take our stand here on anything else but that. Christian leaders are to work hard. Maybe they don't have jobs outside the church, but they're to be known as working hard to set an example of even that to those they lead so that others learn to embrace the same walk themselves that in the midst of working hard in life, we're here to serve Christ ultimately. We're reminded about all that, just the mention of a father. And reminded of one more thing. It's the importance of balanced preaching. Just a word about that quickly. We need to be exhorted. We need that. Exhorted to live more fervently in obedience to God's Word. We need to be consoled at times. We need to be encouraged because we get weary in the daily battle. We need to be urged at times to walk worthily of God in His kingdom of glory. And here's what I've learned. Some people only like the middle one out of that, the consoling and the encouraging part. I've heard people say that, you know, you know your sermon was not very consoling today. Well, it's part of it, but not all of it. It's part of a gospel's minister calling to exhort and urge as well. Urge people to obey Scripture, Bible commands. Those who only want the middle part, here's something else I observe. They call the other two parts, if that's part of the teaching and discipleship ministry, they call that legalism. Calling people's attention to the demands and commands of Scripture. Or the imperatives of Scripture, we call them. They don't want to hear the biblical imperatives. Instead, they just want to be encouraged with the gospel indicatives. An indicative is a statement, not a command. A statement that says something true about Christ and His love for us and the cross and our salvation and our forgiveness and our justification. Those are the indicatives, the promises of God. Just give me the promises of God and the declarations of what God has done for us in Christ so I can be comforted. Because if you start getting into exhorting and urging, that's legalism. Well, I'm going to submit that the Apostle Paul was no legalist. And here's what's interesting. His letters are full of gospel indicatives. He powerfully delivered and wrote about the indicatives of Christ's saving work. I love them. We love those indicatives. And yet he did not shy away from exhorting his followers like a father with imperatives and commandments to challenge people to make progress in their practical godliness, to mature and how they walk worthily of God's calling to mature and what it means to follow Christ. We need all three to grow. So as always, just make all of this personal for your own life. You have to ask yourself questions. Ask yourself this, am I pursuing a walk that is worthy of my calling? Or instead, am I really living some sort of lazy, half-hearted life, a life of half-hearted obedience to God's Word? Am I sincerely trusting in Christ and what He says is right, or are there portions of my life 
that I'm allowing to be governed by what the world says? Am I coming to church to serve Him and worship Him, but really all the time withholding some aspects of my time and my money and even habits from Him? Ask yourself those questions. We need to pursue a walk that is worthy of our calling. But don't misunderstand something about this focus on a walk that's worthy. What I presented here is for believers. It has nothing to do as far as being a way for someone to get saved. No one can try to walk worthily of God as a way of earning God's favor and God's forgiveness. That'll never happen. Instead, here's what Scripture says if you're not a true disciple of Christ. It says things like this, recognize and confess your sin. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Recognize and confess your sin. I'm a sinner. I need forgiveness. And you only find that forgiveness in Christ by trusting in Him alone, who He is and what He did, trusting in Him alone as Savior and Lord. I'll read it again, Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Embrace Him as Savior and Lord. He forgives. The point is sinners are not saved by living up to some sort of standard, but by receiving the work that Christ did. And then, though, a saved person, a true believer, can pursue then all their lives living in a manner that is worthy of that salvation. As a way to keep themselves saved? No. As a way of honoring Christ now, their Lord as a way of showing gratitude to Christ, as a way of pleasing Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this snapshot of commitment, not only that church leaders should take seriously, but then ultimately all believers taking seriously of what it means to live a focused life committed to the things that matter, the basic things, living a godly life, sharing truth with others and discipling others, and proclaiming the truth of the gospel to the world. Help us to be diligent. Console us and comfort us when we're weary. Exhort us and urge us when necessary that we might live lives pleasing to you. And I do pray for anyone here who's never come to that place of recognizing their sinfulness and admitting it and confessing it and seeking the Lord's forgiveness for it and and following Him now as the Lord of their life. I pray that you would do that work in their hearts that only you can do. In Christ's name, amen.